You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hey, have you signed up for the Producers Perspective Super Conference yet? We've got a great set of speakers coming, and we are selling out. Do not wait. This event will sell out. Go to theproducersperspective.com. Sign up today. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. We are bringing you a guest today all the way from the West Coast who is using the fancy technological device known as the telephone to dial into this podcast. Please welcome to the podcast the winner of 13, 13 Emmy Awards. He's a Grammy Award winner as well, a Tony nominee, and one of the funniest guys ever to put words to paper writer David Jabberbaum. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. So David won a whole bunch of those Emmys for his work on The Daily Show, but he's really a theater guy at heart. He co-wrote the score, the music, and the lyrics to Crybaby. Also wrote Act of God on Broadway just a couple seasons ago. He's written books. He's written the opening number for the Tony Awards. And this is a new one for the Producers Perspective podcast. He was a finalist on Teen Jeopardy. Yes. That, how'd you do? I went to the finals and I came in second by one dollar. One dollar? All that strategic betting. No, 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 it wasn't the betting. I just was in just not in the uh, superior position going into final jeopardy, unfortunately. That properly, I should have just done better up to that point. Well, there's, there's always the future, you, you know, just in case the writing thing doesn't work out. Sure, sure. I'll so, have plan B. Tell me, which came first for you, the love of writing or the love of the theater? I guess the love of writing, love of words, and just having just an orientation towards 
cleverness and being verbal and being funny and sort of all the usual symptoms of comedy writing disease that uh, most people have in a sense or someone to make. And when did you start? Like, what was the first time where you sat down and like, oh, I'm going to write something and, and try to get a desired result out of it? I guess sporadically, ever since I was like eight or nine, here and there, you know, you write a song parody for Hebrew school or you come up with something funny and you try to make your parents laugh. And you do it more systematically, the correspondence writing course when I was in ninth or tenth grade. It just sort of happened organically that it was something I, I was just drawn to and positively reinforced about uh, when I was funny. And you just you just learned to do it. It was just a sort of predisposition, sorry, my temperament that I just followed from an early age. And when did you decide it was something you wanted to do as a career? I'm not sure I decided that yet. I'm just doing it. I just sort of, it, it was what I could do and it was what I, I just sort of stuck with my guns and didn't make a decision until opportunities arose whereby I was able to find a way to, to make a living and find creative fulfillment in, in doing it. But certainly for the first few years of college and when I went to graduate school for musical theater at NYU, and after that, I was just tempting to get by and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just kind of screwing around. You went to this small undergraduate institution I've never heard of before called Harvard, right? That is, that is correct. And what was your major there? Government. Government? Yeah, which is the fan political science. I figured out quickly into the first, after the first year or two that I didn't really want to pursue that as a career, but as a major, it was fine and it was really easy. At Harvard, after I, I kind of realized I was just going to take the courses I wanted, stuff I wanted to focus on, I did a lot of acting and a lot of plays in college. And I was also on the Harvard Lampoon and that Hasty Pudding, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know is the original student written musicals that they have at Harvard. I wrote co-wrote two of those, and I was on the Lampoon, and those were sort of the beginnings of the directions I would take in terms of writing comedy, sort of conventional comedy in terms of the Lampoon, and writing theater stuff in terms of the uh, the pudding. And you go to Tisch. Tell me, so you, you get your graduate degree in musical theater writing. What was the most important thing? If you if you could only take away one thing from going to Tisch about musical theater writing, what would it be? Oh, that's easy. Collaboration. The skill of collaboration, which was a skill that applies to so much more than musical theater writing. It, it applies particularly to musical theater writing, but it really applies to almost anything you're going to do in creative writing, you know, short of writing a novel, you know, in a, in a garret. It was just something that I, I really, up to that point, I had not... I sort of a depression about, well, my stuff is my stuff, and I don't, you know, I'm just too cool for school and working with other people. But then I quickly learned and realized that it was really, really fun and satisfying to work with other people and to kind of try to mind meld over a project and find a way to bring out the best in each other rather than the worst. Each other was itself a, a worthy and fun art to try to pursue and get better at. And is there anything that people can do to get to be better collaborators than just by collaborating with more people? Yeah, it's, I guess it's, I, I don't know if I set out that to do it, but I guess in hindsight, it's just a sort of a, just a willingness to let go and be open and be osmotic and let yourself, you know, open up yourself to someone else's talent and let them cross fertilize your talent and, and just meet them halfway. Not in terms of bending to their will and letting them do some stupid thing that's a dumb idea, but finding what they're best at and seeing what you're best at and trying to find a way to bring out the best in each other. That's really fun. So you write humor in a lot of different forms. You've written essays, books, plays, a Twitter account. Is comedy different across those platforms? Is there? Do you have to adapt to each specific style to get the, a different type of laugh? 
Yeah, I, I do. I, I try to. I mean, that, that's a conscious goal of mine. I hope I succeed doing it. That's the part that I really enjoy personally is trying to be flexible and, and not uh, write in different forms and write in different voices. And I, I've never had a desire to write you know anything about you know a uh, forty something Harvard graduate writes comedy in L.A. I don't I don't care about my own life. I don't think anybody anybody else would. But I just like writing other stuff in in different forms and different characters and just like I said. I mean that's kind of that's collaboration too. That's collaboration with with an art form and also with a character. And there's other kinds of collaboration in my melds other than just the, you know actual human beings that you're working with. So I've always I've always just relished that kind of attempt to not be too specialized. And what makes you pick one form or another? Like specifically, you're coming up with an idea. What makes you go, oh, this is for the stage as opposed to this is a book? That's that's a great question. I mean, I I don't know if my experience is brought up to answer that uh, authoritatively, but for me, I, I try to just listen to the idea, uh, which is kind of a pretentious thing to say, but j- just to see what the idea, what the best way to express that idea is and without any prejudging it. So I just try to, try to open up to it and say, well, like, oh, okay, well, he, well, here's an idea. An idea I have is let's write a book as God. What would it be like if God had his memoirs? Yeah, so I had the idea for God and his memoirs, and I thought, well, it would just be funny to, to, if God could look back in a sort of nostalgic way about what he's done. And I thought, well, gee, in that case, the, the best format might be a parody of the Bible that's in chapter and verse. That would be really funny, and then I have something to, to make fun of. So I started working on that, and my publisher said, can, you know, everyone's doing this Twitter thing now. Twitter's very popular. Can you write Twitter account to help publicize the book and do it as God? And I thought, oh, sure, I would do that. And then I thought about that Twitter is a very kind of oracular form where you can just make these declarations as God, and it works very well. So I adapted the voice to that. And that proved a success as well. And a producer, after a few years, came to me and said, Jeffrey Fenn, my buddy Jeffrey, came to me and said, we should make a play out of your Twitter account and your book. And can you transform the voice to make it a, a play? And I thought about it. I said, sure, I could, I could do that too. And I changed the, the voice and the technique to try to make it something that would work in the context of a live event with about 800 people around you and just feeling the presence of God, even though it's obviously God in the form of Jim Parsons. But still, it's, it's you know, that's going to have its own inherent tension and excitement and how to work with that too. So I just try to go with whatever I'm I'm given and not be doctrinaire about it. So I didn't realize that was Jeffrey's idea to adapt it as a play. I had thought about it a little bit, but he really, he I thought about it idly, but he really brought it to me as a practical proposition and really had the idea of the Ten Commandments being a possibility of a framing device as well, which really helped immeasurably in terms of creating the play because then you have a built-in structure that's natural and organic to the material and that would feel good in a live context. Talk to me about Crybaby. How did that idea, where did that come from? That was not my idea. That that was the idea based on the fact, <laughs> the rather obvious fact, that John Waters' hairspray had made a huge amount of money and was an incredibly successful show, and I'm sure they thought, why not make a second one? And it was a really good idea. I mean, you know, why not make a second one and this time try to make it a little different? John Waters was more involved, and they brought in the O'Donnell and me in to do the book again, and they were looking for a different songwriting team, and they kind of had open auditions, and they found me as a lyricist, and they found Adam Schlesinger, who I had not met or worked with previously, as the composer. And that was a very, very happy union that we've worked together ever since on a variety of projects, but that was just sort of a, a matchmaking situation. And that was a great experience, and we had a 
great time writing those songs and getting to work with each other, uh, Adam and I. He himself is a great lyricist, and I think he let me contribute a, a fair amount to the music, so it was really a collaboration of both lyric and music, as it always has with us. Let's talk about that a little bit, because you talked about how you learned about collaboration in school, and I. it's very rare that someone writes music, lyric, like that kind of collaboration exists. How did that actually work? I contributed to, I, he's, he's the principal composer and I'm principal lyric, you know, to, to be sure. But I, I think it was just a realization on both of our parts. And, and Adam himself is an incredible, apart from, he's an incredible many things, but he's an incredible collaborator among, among them. He works with all kinds of people in all different capacities and all different musical forms. He knows it as well. Basically what you're doing is you're trying to, you're just trying to put aside ego for the best possible product. It's not that you don't have an ego. I certainly do, but you just, you know, put it aside and try to make the best, funniest, most innovative or whatever thing and best idea kind of wins and don't be too formal about, well, you know, if it's a word, I'm going to write it. And if it's a note, I'm going to do it. You know, we'll both just work back and forth. And there's just, I gradually realized over the years that there's a lot of joy to be had in that, in, in opening up in, in that way. And working with Adam has been a major part of that, for sure. And what's your specific process for writing a lyric? Do you write a monologue first? Do you write the last line? Is What's what's the process for you? Or is it, does it change every time? It changes every time, but certainly if if there's anything comedic about the lyric, and, and many, but not all, but many of my lyrics are you know comedic in nature, then it's good to have a central premise. It's just good to have a central hook or a central irony or a central thing that you're pointing out the exact same way really as it would be if you, I was working on it creating a Daily Show headline as I did with with John and everybody the Daily Show for many years just trying to come up with a central sort of the, the ground of the song and then to build everything on top of that and then I'm a big fan of wordplay and, and cleverness and perfect rhymes and perfect meter and I'm anal about that stuff and I, I like enforcing that uh, on, my, on myself when I'm when I'm writing uh, and so when I'm writing a lyric and so I, I do take some pride in in, in that stuff, in the craft of it. How did writing for television for so many years help you write for the theater? Is it is it good training for the theater or vice versa? I think it was good training in a very indirect way and just that like working for John was, was really just an amazing, working for John Stewart and with John Stewart was just an amazing training experience in a thousand different ways but one of them was just don't be afraid. It's you know it's a, it's a great Sondheim quote that he always says. Uh, it's better to be funny than clever. And and John epitomizes that because I I think I came into experience on everything on the side of uh, clever. You know the word play and well, I'm so smart and my references are so obscure and this and that and and that's all well and good. But to be funny is to really at a gut level is to really capture something that's far more you know, far deeper than just a very clever wordplay joke. And that's something that I've learned from John. And that's something that I think I tried to apply to the theater like when I wrote Act of God there's a lot of clever stupid wordplay in there or maybe just stupid stupid wordplay in there depending on your point of view but I, I did try to you know think about it and writing and thinking about some of the, the fundamental points and ironies and truths that I wanted or I believed anyway that I wanted to get out and to try to structure the show around that so that there would be something something left you know, something resonant in you when you watched it yeah, that, after you watched it that clever versus funny thing is such a great note I remember a writing teacher of mine me saying, look at this, look what I did here. Can't you see, look, the symbolism here and blah, blah, blah. And he said to me, Ken, you can't be seated next to all of your readers whispering in their ear what things exactly. mean. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. That's, that is absolutely a lesson and a truth that I have learned and I, I think and I hope I've, I've absorbed and understood over the years that exact point. Of course, I mean, if you can be funny and clever, that's great. 
I mean, that's certainly great. I mean, I think that's, I think so much of what Lin-Manuel Miranda does in Hamilton is, is funny and clever. You know, and many other things, but but achieves both of those things. But if you have to pick one, go with something funny because funny is is, is more likely to be something that has an emotional truth to it. So let's talk about your your specific or your your literal writing process. Are you a I'm going to get up, I write every morning from six a.m. No, to 8 I have no discipline. I have no discipline. I have no plan, and I constantly berate myself for for the lack of those things. But it's at this point in my life, it's too late to change. I'm just going to. I, I don't. I just don't. It's good to put myself in a position where somebody else's authority is making me right. As you know, many people will attest, it's just it's good to be made to do it and to not have a choice. Because if I have a choice, I will find a way to try to back out of it. But like like a year ago, when I had a, when I got a contract from Netflix to have to create 20 shows for an episodic television show for Netflix, that was good because it means I have to do it. And and then there's less there's no time for debating with yourself about how you're going to do it. And can you do it? You just have to do it. And that's always very helpful. If someone asked you for the one secret to writing comedy, the one thing, if you had to leave like one thing for the next generation about comedy, what would that be? There's no one thing. I mean, I, one, I, again, I learned it, I, I learned it from John. I mean, just, just if you're going to be a, a comedy professional and you certainly don't have to be, I don't recommend it necessarily, but if that's what you want to do, then one thing you need to understand is why something is funny. Like what is the underlying basis of why something is funny? And ultimately comedy and why something is funny is a mystery. You know, why should a set of words produce a certain kind of jerky vibratory reaction in your in, in your stomach that causes you to laugh? There's no connection to that, really. But you should understand, and I, again, uh, John taught me this, like why a story in the news is, is absurd or ironic and hypocritical. And if you can understand that and then have the comedy sort of have that tilt to it so that it, it's working toward exposing that, then it just it makes it more comedically deep and interesting. I don't know if it changes the world anymore, but it just makes it more comedically rich. How do you think Broadway is doing in terms of comedy? You think we're on the cutting edge now? You think we're lagging behind? I honestly, I mean, I'm ensconced here in Southern California and haven't for four and a half years. I'm not going to pretend to be, the, be an authority at all on what's happening in comedy in New York right now, except to the extent that I'm trying to maybe work on another comedy so I can get one in New York. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I couldn't have been happier and continue to be happy about about Hamilton and everything else. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I just, I just think it's, I think it's great that a musical in this day and age was able to co-opt the zeitgeist like that and, and make people think about musicals as something vibrant. And, you know, and that's, that's what anything you do has to be, has to be something that feels vital and new and alive and, and, you know, transgressive and in some way. So let's talk about you being ensconced in Southern California because I, look, I believe you're one of the freshest and funniest comedic voices around and we've lost you to Hollywood in a bit. Is this a, is this a problem? First of all, I wrote, I wrote an act of God in here in California. I wrote it in California. I mean, I had already moved here and then I, I came to New York for a month. So I, my biggest success so far was, was written in, in California and then performed here at the Amundsen with Sean Hayes the next year. So, so don't blame out. L.A. for losing me. I'm, I'm also just must just getting older and, and more senile. That's not an L.A. thing. That's just a me thing. What should Broadway do to keep and foster more young writers? And you know, is is it about different option advances? Is it about different business models? Is there something we can do to to keep more people here, or are there just writers that are going to write more for Hollywood than more for Broadway? 
I think the writers are going to write more for Hollywood and, and more for Broadway. I mean, I, I really like, I, I've had a career where, as you mentioned, I think in the introduction, I've written a lot of songs for television and I, I've gotten good at it and I really enjoy it. I think it's a nice fusion of musical theater styles and, and television styles. I, I think, you know, it's simply having great shows like Hamilton and Book of Mormon before it that are out there that, make people want to see them and then make some people will want to write them. I think having good shows will ultimately breed good shows. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's just that simple. I mean, I don't know. I, I would imagine if there, if, if there had been a formula for, for keeping Broadway successful or keeping anything successful, it would have been canonized by now and there wouldn't be a, a problem. So I, I think it's just a matter of just continuing to, to bring good, trying to bring good new stuff to the stage. It does pay more out here, I'll tell you that. But I will also tell you that there's no bigger rush than having a live audience watching your stuff and knowing that you wrote it and laughing at, laughing at it. I mean, I've had both of those things and ha- happened to me, and they're both great in, in different re- ways. But the part about the theater that I like is that it's so visceral and so immediate. It doesn't involve the transmission of electrons along cables. It, it's just, you know, you and, and the thing in front of you, and it's very felt. Well, it's that paycheck thing that I hear from a lot of writers. Writers here, of course, that they want to go out there and make a lot of money so they can maybe come back and do something. Any advice for writers that of the theater playwrights that want to write for television? Is there something they need to do in order to shape their skills to write for that medium? I don't know. It's tricky because any advice you give about how to write for an entire art form like television, I mean, it's not going to be advice that necessarily applies to any one individual. I mean, I think the best, I, I, I was, I, I'll just give you my story. I'm writing the show Disjointed or I created the show Disjointed that's going to premiere late August on Netflix. I got the chance to do it because Active God was on Broadway and Jim Parsons started in it and Chuck Lorre created Big Bang Theory among many other shows came to see and liked it a lot and reached out to me and said, gee, that was really good. I'd love to work with you on something. And I had this loose idea for a television show and, and that's how it happened. And, and then we started working on it and he was, he's been wonderful in a lot of ways. And one thing he's done is really helped me find what my, what my voice is. And I think, I think the shows that are, uh, that are really making a mark on television comedy, I mean, have, have always been a show like Master of None, which is a great show. That's his I'm sorry. And, and that's called Creator Yang's vision. You know, a personal vision of, of what they want a show to be. So ultimately, I, I think if you have a, your own show or your own play, your own anything, I, I, I think commercial interests are fine and you should try to follow them. Just know that they're different from the arc of your own creative development and that needs to happen parallel to that. It's kind of vague advice, but I wouldn't want to I feel weird being any more specific than that. A, a new feature we're doing here on the podcast, we're introducing theater artist hacks. Anything that you do in your life, any apps you use, do you go to yoga? What book do you recommend to people? Anything that you use that uh, helps you lead a more productive life? I need a more productive life, Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I, uh, I don't feel like I've ever had a productive life. I'll tell you what I've been doing a lot lately is I'm shooting a lot of pool. I, I really love shooting pool. It's just a great game. I find, I mean, everybody has something, I guess, or can find something that they, they find very meditative and relaxing. And for me, it's just like going to a pool hall and shooting, shooting pool for about an hour or two and just trying to is completely absorbing. And I, I think to have something like that, I mean, it's different for everybody. You know, that's my yoga, I guess. But it's just very nice to focus, to have something that's completely void of anything else, having to do with anything important or, or earnest. And also, I, 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 the other advice I would give is don't try, and this is 
common advice these days, try not to spend too much time on your phone. Try not to spend too much time worrying about the world because the world is beyond repair. So there's nothing you can do about it and your conscience can be clean. Yeah, you shut down Tweet of God, right, for that reason? I shut down the Tweet of God. The, I mean, the immediate reason was that I was about to start working on this uh, television show and I, I didn't want to split my focus. And then the larger thing was I just didn't spend a lot of time on it. It was very successful, but, it, you know, I, I didn't like what it was doing to me. I didn't like the way that it was making me obsess about you or you know, how many views I'm getting and this and that. I didn't like the way that it made me prickly when it came to any kind of criticism I got. It, it wasn't. I didn't like you know what it does, what it was doing to me. And to my, I think it, I think it does that to a lot of people. I think a lot of people just get burned out on that. So I just thought for the betterment of my soul, I would stop. I, I may come back to it at some point. I, I still up and I, I haven't shut it down. I don't plan on shutting it down. Or is there the right to to return to it? But it was a necessary break. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you to thank you for your contributions to both theater and television and for being the voice of God and wants to grant you one wish. From your experience here on Broadway with Act of God, Cry Baby, what's the one thing that drove you nuts about the Broadway theater scene that really got you upset, angry, would have you cussing like crazy, that you'd want this genie to wish away? Boy, I mean, I, I, you know, you mentioned the two major things I had was Try Baby and an Act of God, and, and an Act of God was pretty much unambiguously great experience. And Try Baby was a great experience other than the fact that we got a lot of bad reviews, which I, with which I disagreed. Obviously, I thought it was a much better show than a lot of people said it was. But I mean, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't find it unfair. I don't know, for me, I, I mean, I, there's other things you ask me about where I, I, could, I could tell you, you know, horrible negative <laughs> things or, or uh, counter realities that would have been the case. But I have no complaints about my time on Broadway. I, I love it. And I'm just so appreciative of the fact that I got to, especially, I mean, a crybaby now is being done all around the country in various places. And I'm hoping there'll be some kind of revival and a reassessment of it. And I sort of understand why there's a lot of reasons, at least superficially, not not to like it. You say, oh, it's just like Greece. It's another hit John Waters thing and this and that. But, you know, I think the score is, is being reassessed and certainly Screw Loose is everybody's audition song. I've seen a lot of audition songs of people trying out on Screw Loose on YouTube, which is great. And then for an act of God, I, I mean, I was just, I'm so fortunate that like this great producer who's very active, Jeffrey Finn, got me to write this show and then we went out and we found Joe Mantello and Jim Parsons at a package deal and we opened up Broadway with great reviews. I mean, I got nothing to complain about. I, I, I had a, a very blessed time, no pun intended. So I, I don't mean to come across as not cynical because I'm certainly very cynical, but when it comes to Broadway, I have very positive feelings. I, I hope those feelings came out. I've written out three opening songs with, uh, for the, uh, for the Tonys, two with, uh, for Neil Patrick Harris and then James Corden's last year about, you know, that could be me and how one day maybe it could be you up here on the Broadway stage. And that's really how I feel about Broadway. I just feel like sort of the, it's the entertainment area in my head that feels like, yeah, maybe nostalgically, just like the, the purest and, and the cleanest and the nicest because it's the least amount of money and it's the, it's the most visceral and the most clearly about just wanting to entertain and, and perform. I will happily give you a cynical answer to some other question you can devise. <laughs> we just have to get you spending more time in our very small seats with no leg room and dealing yeah, that's with our the thing. I, like if I were going to, if I were going to the theater every night and I could do that, I could complain. I would probably complain about that. I would probably complain about the fact that the number of cocktails is limited uh, between acts, you know, probably like a broader selection of drinks and stuff like that. But I'm, I'm not there that often, so 
I have nothing but uh, Pollyanna eyes. Well, uh, you're so good at what you do. Here's hoping you are here much more often in the future. Thanks so much for being here today with us. Thanks, all of you, for listening out there. Don't forget to subscribe, and we will see you next time. Thanks, David. Thank you, Ken. Don't forget to check out the Super Conference at theproducersperspective.com. We are selling out, and I want you to be there. It's going to be super fun. Theproducersperspective.com. Register today. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.